I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the Pursued by a Bear podcast. I'm Nicole Saratori, Broadway editor of Exeunt NYC. Today we are hosting a book club to talk about the new book released in February called The World Only Spins Forward, The Ascent of Angels in America by Isaac Butler and Dan Coyce, an oral history of the play. This month, Angels in America returns to the Broadway stage on the 25th anniversary of the original Broadway production. The production from the National Theatre has transferred with much of the same cast, including Andrew Garfield, James McArdle, Nathan Lane, and Denise Goff, and a few notable newcomers, including Lee Pace and Beth Malone. I sat down with a couple fellow Exeunt critics to talk about our relationship to Angels in America and our experience with reading this new book. Enjoy. But yeah, I like the I like the soft opening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> what is that headwig line? Good morning. <laughs> oh yeah, um, my uh, uh, I like a warm hand, warm hand on my, <laughs> my opening. opening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a good spiritual guide for today. <laughs> yes. Today's journey. So why don't we introduce ourselves? I'm Lane Williamson. I'm a critic for Exeunt, and uh, I love Angels in America, <laughs> as we all do. Yeah, um, I'm Alex Barish. I am also a critic for Exeunt, among other places. I write for Slate as well, and I too am a big fan of Angels in America. <laughs> Conveniently, we've mm. brought together some fans. I probably should have brought a hater. I don't know that I know <laughs> any, but... Just uh, Michael Riedel is the only one. <laughs> That's true. And I'm Nicole Saratori. I'm the Broadway editor for Exeunt NYC. Um, And we're here today to talk about both Angels in America and the book, The World Only Spins Forward. This was sort of Alex's idea when I was tweeting about, like, I wish I had a book club to talk about this. And then Alex was like, oh, what about a podcast? (laughs) Right. That is an actual technological invention. We have it available to us. So we have a couple ways to sort of approach it. And I think the nicest way to start would be to talk about our first Angels in America, our first experience of the play in in production um, of some form. So, um, because I am 108 years old, I <laughs> saw Angels in America on Broadway in 1993. I, it was kind of an interesting moment for the play and for me and for what was sort of going on at the time. But I was uh, coming to NYU as a freshman and NYU was in Angels fever because they had been, <laughs> as mentioned in this book, there was a student production of Perestroika in the grad acting department. And uh, Tony was on campus for that. And I think he might have even been teaching some classes. I'm not quite sure. But everybody had assigned the reading for the summer. Like we were all encouraged, encouraged, not assigned, to read Millennium that summer. And then the university pretty much just gave us all tickets to go see it. And then that wasn't just for, I was at the Tisch School of the Arts, but my friend who was at the College of Arts and Science also had, was able to do this. So we all were kind of wrapped up 
in the national conversation about angels, but on campus as well. And um, and I was 17, and I just moved to the city, and this was the first play I saw on Broadway. I was like, oh, so all plays are like this. <laughs> no. <laughs> Broadway does not look like this and has not looked like this since. Has that uh, uh, created unrealistic expectations? <laughs> for my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like this is, this is the origin story of my criticism if you ever <laughs> wanted to understand where I'm coming from. Um, so, yeah. So, and I think I ob- obviously will always have a super warm spot in my heart for that original production. Like, so much so that I avoided the HBO miniseries because I just couldn't do it. I was like, no, no, no one will ever do justice to this play as was done in my heart in 1993 by Joe Mantello and David Marshall Grant, Marsha Gay Harden. So I think that's, I mean, that's, that's my first Angels that um, sort of meant the world to me. It's funny because I always look at the play as Lewis's play because I saw that production and then mm. I've seen other productions. And I was like, oh no, it is Pryor's play. <laughs> but it's hard with Joe Mantello. I mean, you guys. <laughs> Yeah, well, no, I think that's a great point because I also look at the play as Lewis's play and I didn't see Joe Mantello. Um, but I think that just comes from my identification with Lewis, uh, even from the first time I read the play. So this leads into my uh, first Angels. In 1993, I was four so and I lived in West <laughs> see, Virginia. <laughs> so uh, in West Virginia, four-year-olds were not really uh, up on Angels in America. <laughs> Uh, but I, the pity. <laughs> but I, uh, when the miniseries uh, was announced, uh, I was in. I was a freshman in high school, and uh, I read the play first. And then uh, I remember being in uh, driving school because I'm from California. I walked on our lunch break to the uh, Costco nearby and bought the DVDs of the miniseries and watched it. I didn't watch it as it uh, aired. I watched it on those DVDs from Costco and became entirely obsessed with this. And uh, I remember sitting in like PE class in high school uh, on like a rainy, rainy day or something. And uh, I was reading it and then people would come over to me and they'd be like, what are you reading? And I'd be like, oh my God, and I would read scenes aloud to them from the book, <laughs> which, uh, you know, one of my favorite scenes to read was the uh, uh, fuck me, hurt me, make me bleed <laughs> park scene. You were popular um, in high school. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, and then I would explain the doubling of prior to people. Um, but my first live uh, angels did not come until I moved to New York and saw the uh, the next wave, the BAM next wave uh, transfer of Ivo Van Hova's Angels in America, which, uh, uh, you know, as you know, if you saw it, uh, is abridged. They do all of Millennium Approaches with uh, zero intermissions. Um, and then there's a break, or I think there's one, there's, there won't, was there one intermission? I don't even remember, but yeah, it feels like yeah. it's sort of, he's like, what, why would you stop? Just keep going. <laughs> right. And then the play just like abruptly ends when, uh, Lewis comes back to Pryor with the bruises. Then the, that's the last scene of, of Evo's angels. Well. There's no, uh, there's no night flight to San Francisco. There's no, uh, you are fabulous creatures. None of that happens. It just ends. And I was furious and i was like this is not and at that point the only uh van hova thing i'd seen was uh scenes from scenes from a marriage at uh new york theater workshop which i loved and was obsessed with and uh so then this i was like what is he doing how is this acceptable why does tony kushner say this is his favorite production of angels in america 
and over like uh, since then I have uh, come to think back on it and uh, I have a fondness for it and I think that there are definitely images that stick out to me from that. So that was that was my first live, Alex. Yeah, I mean, reading about that production in this book, The World Only Spins Forward, was really interesting because um, he was saying that Prior's final speech was very American, so they cut it. And <laughs> I was like, what are you doing? That's like the best part of this play. <laughs> but um, I, my first experience with the play because I was born in 1996. Oh my gosh, now I feel old. (laughs) Thank God, thank God somebody else can feel old in this I'm sorry. I mean, it was was to my disadvantage because I missed all of these opportunities to see this play live. So... Um, I wasn't even a like fertilized egg yet, <laughs> so and I have FOMO. Like genuinely, I mean, I um, I think you also went to the event where in Brooklyn where uh, they did a staged reading and they brought some of the members of the original cast and Laura Miller, who was moderating that conversation, was talking about having seen it in San Francisco, and oh, I was wow. like, I hate you so much. This <laughs> sounds incredible, and you yeah. know, she was making reference to specific staging decisions from all those years ago, and I was like why is there no record of this? (laughs) I mean, now there kind of is, which is great. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so I first came to it through the HBO miniseries because that was really the only um, option available to me. And I I came to it with the idea that that I would be connecting with the history of my community as a young gay man through this kind of great defining work of literature that was very seminal. And I didn't really know that it was supposed to be funny, um, and I mean, I was, I was, def- I was deeply moved by it and I did laugh at it at points, but I think it's true that the HBO adaptation is a little bit more, um, self-serious and a little bit mm-hmm. more about the, the tragedy. And I'm not sure that that production showed me just how human and honest and messy it could be. And I think I was kind of alienated from Perestroika because of that, because it felt so self-serious and the, the way that the angel played and the... Uh, the principalities played it felt like this production thought it had all the answers in a way that I was like no it doesn't (laughs) but uh, I think a lot of that is just about being there with an audience and having other people reacting to it with you like my first experience was just watching it on my laptop with my boyfriend (laughs) Uh, and I, I still haven't seen it live in its entirety I saw Millennium Approaches at the National and really enjoyed that uh but i have read and devoured the script itself and i'm looking forward to seeing the other half on broadway so and that's sort of what prompted a little bit of this conversation as well as the publication of the book is that i mean it's returning to broadway and i am making room in my heart for another production (laughs) Uh, i mean i also saw the evo production um i saw the and i will not speak of it again the off broadway and i'm gonna put this in quotes production (laughs) of angels in america Um, which I was really appreciative of how little it was in the book. (laughs) But let's turn then now to talk about the book a little bit, because I think, as you've sort of mentioned, it does cover so many of these iconic productions, as well as a little bit of the cultural history taking place at the time. I guess I sort of thought it was going to be, you know, it certainly is focused on the development of the play and how the play even came to exist in its sort of messy birth and growth. (laughs) But uh, let's talk about our favorite part of this book. Um, So this book was published in February, and um, I know the minute I started reading it, it was so hard to put down. I wanted to just keep, you know, it just... It's so many it, because it's an oral history. It's all of these voices and all these voices of people who are fascinating creators, artists, 
um, journalists and um, uh, you know activists and uh, and uh, academics sort of talking about this work and its sort of place in American history, really. Um, so let's talk about our favorite part of the book. Um, Lane, why don't you start? I grew up going to the Mark Taper Forum, uh, you know, starting on field trips in high school and uh, and then, you know, I, before I left California, I would go there all the time to see plays. I think it's uh, it's an incredible uh, theater. Yeah, have, you, have you been there, Mark Taper Forum? No, I actually haven't. Yeah, it's a beautiful uh, thrust space uh, that everything you see there from any seat feels like it's handing itself to you. It feels, uh, you know, I've seen a huge, not huge, but like sizable musicals there. And I've seen tiny plays there. Um, and everything that I've seen, uh, is so immediate. And so, uh, after I became obsessed with this, with this play, I, uh, would just sit in the Mark Taper Forum, no matter what I was seeing, and think about Angels in America. <laughs> and they have the they have the the tone the regional theater Tony. They have a, I don't know what it is. They have a regional Tony, but then they also have an Angels in America Tony engraved in the basement, and which is where the restrooms are. <laughs> and I mean the place of honor. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean it was re- it was everybody uh, will see it if it's near the bathroom. <laughs> about, about ten years ago, it was uh, renovated, so it's very nice down there now. Um, uh, please go see the restrooms with the Mark Taper form. <laughs> um, but uh, so when I would go to the bathroom, I would walk by this Tony, and uh, it would be it would just smack me in the face. You know how much I. Uh, was experiencing by being in this space where this thing was not created, but uh, uh, grown. My love for Joe Mantello as a uh, director and uh, and, an actor was uh, being built at that time too. And so I just felt every time I would go to the Mark Taper forum about how I would, I would feel so uh, this overwhelming sense of passion for this play. And so my favorite parts of the book were uh, about those taper, the taper and the taper two uh, productions of Angels and what that was like being there. Um, and I did not know that K. Todd Freeman was Belize, <laughs> yeah. which was so exciting because uh, anyone who's familiar with me at all knows that I <laughs> love Airline Highway by Lisa Damore, which... Starred Gay Todd Freeman. <laughs> so, and directed by Joe Mantello. And directed by... Uh, His old buddy from Angels in America. Yeah. I mean, Amazing. I know. It is It is nice to see the the voice, the so many people who had a role in the mm-hmm. development of this play come out in this book. And again, many, many people that I didn't know had an involvement or participated in some aspect of its growth um, as it moved along. How about you, Alex? Yeah, I mean... I guess for me it would have to be the Eureka production and kind of the development because the work leading up to the kind of birth of Angels in America is something that I didn't know a lot about going in and I really loved hearing about the play's origins and the people who influenced it as well like uh, and the way that the actors matched up with their characters and especially the dialogue between Kushner and Kimberly Flynn who Mm -hmm. was a close friend of his and sort of an intellectual sparring partner in a way. Hearing about the way that uh, her car accident and sort of the subsequent issues that she had to deal with with respect to her health and her relationship with Kushner and how all of that informed the character of Pryor and the sort of development of the play as a whole was 
really moving and really interesting as well. And I, I think just sort of understanding the dynamics that informed the play and taking us back to this point before it was kind of an all-consuming phenomenon <laughs> and baptized as a great work of American literature has a lot of value because I've never known it as anything other than that. Yeah. I wasn't there at the inception to sort of appreciate the the growing phenomenon. And also the the insight into the way that the play was promoted is occasionally kind of hilarious. <laughs> like before it was able to speak for itself as this great work, like there's a there's a flyer on page 51 for the Eureka production <laughs> and the caption is, our systems are breaking down. AIDS, the ozone, the government and God has disappeared. <laughs> and I just love that as this like campy, you know, here's this really high stakes story and it's not it's all of those themes do get dealt with in angels in america in a very beautiful and effective way but that's not really what i think about necessarily when i think about the play and i just find it funny the way that they had to talk about it before it could stand up on its own terms i can sort of imagine that in the terrible movie trailer voice in the world god has walked away I love that, like that, like late '80s, early '90s uh, obsession with the ozone layer yeah. that then made it onto that flyer too, <laughs> as if like that display is about the uh, you know using aerosol cans. <laughs> Hairspray has taken us down, and right. now we're here. <laughs> well, I, I mean, again, I think it 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 does come from our sort of first relationship sometimes with the play. But my bias in in reading the book was certainly to sort of gobble up the whole section on the original. Um, Broadway production, the characters, the the actors that I had seen on stage, and all of the sort of backstage machinations that were happening that obviously were not um, uh, available to me to know about. Uh, so the entire this whole segment with Marcia Gay Harden and the wig. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Apparently, she was obsessed with wearing a terrible wig to play Harper and George Seawolf. Like the exchange in the book is, and I will quote. I had a wig, to which George C. Wolf says, oh, God, the wig. <laughs> and it just goes from there. There's, like, actual, like, physical chaos that happens afterwards. Um, so I really appreciated, like, some of those little, like, backstage nuggets that, uh, you know, I definitely didn't know about at the time. But also, I think I mean, there's so much from David Marshall Grant in there about his own sort of self-realization about his life in the closet yeah. and his connection to the character of Joe, who he played at the time, and how when he started <laughs> the production, he was still in the closet per- uh, professionally. And then sort of by the end of the Broadway production, he was out. But how much of that experience like his his actualization of oh, i totally his connection to joe his understanding of how a man could marry a woman and and have this public life that was so separate from his um private life and his own mind and i think um he has this really lovely quote about leaving acting ultimately because after this he became a player uh, playwright and a producer and a showrunner and you know had quite a long career in entertainment Um, So David Marshall Grant talks about leaving acting and he has this really powerful quote about the experience saying, being an actor was so filled with the shame of being gay and my whole journey refusing to be who I was that it all got mixed up with acting and I wanted to be myself. Just such a moving uh, sort of revelations from him in this book were uh, so unexpected for me. 
And I really love that they made backstage movies of <laughs> Joe Mantello, David Marshall Grant, and yeah. Marsha Gay Harden in the character of Martin, <laughs> who's the sort of weird like Justice Department guy in the play that she plays at some point. <laughs> and that Martin was deeply in love with David Marshall Grant. Just like the sort of ridiculous, goofy backstage antics of these people who I've held in such high esteem for so long, showing themselves to be totally human and adorable. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see those documentaries so badly. Oh my God, I know. It's like, where's the footage you guys the people yeah. demand yeah but i thought it did do a great job of kind of unpacking the reverence that people now have for angels in america and showing just the utter chaos that sort of went into the whole production every step of the way and every single production because he kept rewriting it <laughs> and it's hard i mean there i mean there are nine thousand anecdotes in the book about trying to fly the angel and angels <laughs> right. getting injured and the hilarity of an angel upside down on stage in their entrance <laughs> and like all of the mistakes and i maybe this it is it is sort of that that human fallibility quotient that's so apparent in this book for for a show that has been held in such high esteem but that it is really really difficult to do <laughs> yeah i think it's so interesting uh that we that i sort of i'm not going to speak for everyone but i think that a lot of people me and me as well uh see forget that this is just a play you know it's just <laughs> like a play that people were doing uh it's not it, the reverence that i have for it and that a lot of people have for it uh was it, it came from just actors doing a play at the Walter Kerr you know it's 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 kind of crazy to to think about that that now it's so golden now it's so you know uh, it's such a it's such a monument now well let's talk about also what sort of surprised us in this book because I think that is one of the the fun elements of of being able to pick up this oral history now in this moment um and and break down some of that reverence and our experience of the play. Um, does anyone have a sort of favorite moment or the things um, that surprised them rather? Yeah, I was really surprised by sort of how close we came to not having key characters and key moments. Like the existence of Harper and Hannah and to a lesser extent the angel is predicated on the fact that the Eureka company had a certain number of women and he needed to write parts for a certain number of female characters. And he complained about it. He was like, what are these women doing in this play about gay men? <laughs> and, you know, they are such an instrumental part of it now that the idea that they almost weren't there, that they were sort of a fluke of casting is is wild. <laughs> And then also uh, certain exchanges sort of only happened because he was in conversation with the actors themselves as the play was being developed. Like uh, there's a moment where he talks about, or Tony had a conversation with uh, Joseph Meidel who played Belize in London in the 1993 production. It's on page 298 in the book. And Meidel says, I remember very distinctly that just as we got to part two, I had a conversation with him about Belize saying, why is it that a black character is always an attendant to a white character? Why don't we know anything about Belize other than his relationship with Pryor? Does he have a life outside of being a nurse? And then he wrote this incredible scene between Lewis and Belize. And that's the moment in which Belize sort of sets the record straight and says, actually, my life doesn't revolve around Pryor and I have my own love life and my own stuff going on and just the fact that we almost didn't have that quite important moment where he establishes his autonomy in that way was really surprising and interesting to me. And I just thought it was really valuable to see the way that these conversations, the way that Tony's own experiences and the way that the actor's experiences and his openness to them sort of led to these scenes that I would now think of as being really vital to the work. 
I mean, obviously I was aware of Oscar Eustace's association with the play, but I didn't know about the whole contentious uh, fight, really, that they had and the um, and the two directors and, and, you know, Tony essentially moving the play away from Oscar. Um, I, I saw them one time sitting together in the library uh, at the public, and it blew my mind. And uh, just to see the two of them sitting, talking together, and... So then when I read that part of the book, I was so, I was like, wow, this seems like it was very difficult for both of them, but somehow they are still friends. (laughs) Uh, I know. I've definitely ended friendships over so much less. Oh yeah, me too. (laughs) Every day. (laughs) And to have been sort of like, you know, sort of cut out of this incredible play, this, you know, monumental American play, right. like, yeah, sort of marginalized in the experience for reasons. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not that Oscar Eustace has not uh, He's made done a okay for himself for afterwards. Himself. <laughs> uh. I was really surprised by how many straight people played these characters over time. I mean, again, my, my bias with the, the New York production in the 90s, you know, I saw gay actors playing gay characters and so hadn't really considered how special and unique that was mm-hmm. at that moment. Um, and so many actors, particularly in the book, sort of talking about their own internalized homophobia and how to, how you know, being in these roles and these characters, helping them move through that. And I mm-hmm. think, I mean, for me, certainly seeing the play at the time, at a time where, you know, my coming from, you know, small town America, spent a lot of time within the bubble of homophobia wherever I was, um, coming to New York and starting to break that down as a teen and meeting gay people and spending time in New York. I mean, it just the play unto itself was part of that process for me. And there were certainly anecdotes within the book about people seeing the humanity of gay people through this play. Um, but I, I guess I was really just surprised once you really start to look at the the casting list over time and who was playing some of these roles. And certainly it's come back now for me with Andrew Garfield playing mm. Pryor, um, sort of putting aside some of his awkward public comments on the subject. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, watching a straight man play a drag queen and trying to do that without falling into stereotype or parody. I mean, no, as the audience sitting there knowing Andrew Garfield, you know, to be this straight man playing this very, um, uh, you know, performative feminine character, um, you know, such a, uh, was really a, a striking experience and made me really think about how remarkable it was Tony Kushner chose to put the hero's journey in the hands of this feminine, performative, outest of out gay men. And that's the hero. And he is the strongest person in the story. Um, which again, when you, when I spent all these years thinking, oh, it's Lewis's story. Uh, <laughs> like, no, no, I realize, I realize it's Pryor's journey. I re- you know, but seeing, you know, watching Andrew Garfield do that really sort of um, broke that open for me a little bit more. I love that that photo on page fifteen of uh, Tony and Steven Spinella at Gay Pride um, <laughs> before every oh, before all of this happened. Yeah, sure. and they both have these huge heads of curly hair. <laughs> it's just it's it's so beautiful. I was also surprised by and and 
Alex is somebody who you've lived in the UK. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't know about Section 28 and the history of that in yeah. the UK. And so the book talks a little bit about this from 1990, uh, sorry, from 1988 to 2003, the law barred the promotion of homosexuality. So for the London productions of Angels in America that took place in the 90s, they were not legally able to stage the gay sex in the play and that, I mean, just simply the act of doing this play was sort of walking a very fine line about uh, on this issue of the promotion of homosexuality. And I, you know, not being aware of that law's existence, it, you know, it really sort of struck me what uh, an incredible chilling effect that must have had on people's lives, on representation, on, you know, in a way to keep people down further and longer and well into the 2000s. Yeah. And I mean, we see that in America as well, because uh, earlier in the book, it talks about how the New York Times couldn't write the word gay and Mm -hmm. put that in print. And just the idea of this, I mean, that was more self-censorship, I guess, but the way that these things just were not talked about. And then suddenly you have this national tour of a play that is very frankly and unapologetically about this community and these issues that that must have just been monumental. And I would also say there were two sort of really brilliant observations in this book that I wanted to point out. And I think maybe, Lane, you maybe tweeted about one of these as well. But I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Michael Crass, the costume designer of the National Tour, uh, talks about um, his sort of struggles to sort out all the costuming issues in, in the play. But he said, you know, there are so many quick changes and wig changes and female to male changes. And why is it so complicated? Could the doubling be different? But by way of assignment of the actor to role, it's all purposeful because there's no straight male delivering authority. It is, in fact, very conscious. And I think even the rabbi, even the doctor, even Martin, even the old Bolshevik, they're played by women, and it's deeply subversive. And as obvious as that is to me now, as he says it, I never thought about that before. Yeah, no, it's it's so fascinating because uh, you see so many... Uh, pieces of uh, gay white male art that are uh, misogynist that that in their focus on gay men they neglect women or they diminish women or they make women the sidekick or you know she's 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 sassy or whatever but this play does not do that harper is treated in this play like she's one of the her her, her strength is as dominant as Roy's as Pryor's more so than Joe, which I think is a true feat that he was able to do that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I've always seen her journey in parallel to Pryor's, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I mean, particularly as it was played in the original Broadway cast. I mean, they, they both had a very similar energy, Marcia Gay Harden and Steam Spinella in their sort of hyper characters and, um, and and their presence, their, their presence on stage and sort of joy that they took from each other and discoveries they made of each other. And that, you know, she, I mean, she is seeking out her truth. She is sorting that out and will not, you know, leave this play until she know, like, until she knows where she stands and then will, you know, build her new life in whatever direction she's headed west apparently um and you know joe isn't there yet he is so far from making it to that you know he is so 
uh, embryonic in his journey. And it's funny because I feel like there are conversations about like characters who feel hated in the play mm-hmm. and the actors who played them. Um, Joe Mantello talks about people sort of lobbing a lot of hatred toward Lewis and a lot of um, uh, animosity toward Joe. And I mean, you know, I can imagine specifically in the 90s where you have an audience full of people who have been caring for their loved ones who are, are sick, who are dying of AIDS, people who have lost their loved ones in that way, to watch a character walk away from his partner in the midst of that had to have been, you know, I can't even I can't even imagine what that experience would have been like. So I, I understand intellectually where that comes from, but as the sort of naive 17-year-old who looked at Lewis as a character of like, oh my God, I am that flawed, fucked up mess. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I don't know what my choices would have been. And, and I know that that choice when I read it, when I saw it at the time, was just sort of like, it was baffling. It was like, oh, I've never seen anyone do that in their life. You know, anyone who's ever been in my family who was sick, people would care for. You know, like it never, it never crossed my mind that there was a choice there. Um, but at the same time, there was something incredibly liberating about the honesty of that and the and and his struggle with it. And I mean, he doesn't do it easily, and he spends the entire play <laughs> twisted in knots over that decision. But it does sort of lead me to the other quote that really struck me in the book. Um, that again, sort of feels obvious now in retrospect. But David Cromer, the director, um, they talk about his production in Chicago in the book as well. But he says, in, uh, in which he also played Lewis. He directed it and played Lewis. Oh my god, I didn't really? realize that. I didn't yeah, miss that. Yeah, they talk about that in the. Yeah, he talks about that. Oh my yeah. god, that's fascinating. But he says we all want to believe that we are Harper and Pryor, these magical wounded heroes. <laughs> Most people are Joe and Lewis. We are all Joe and Lewis. <laughs> we are weak and liars, and I love those characters for that. And. And that, I mean, it's always been my perspective and I've never hated Lewis or Joe. And I, and now only, you know, as an older person <laughs> at 108 years old, I really understand that flawed fuck upness of both of them and the, and that journey and process that they are both going through in very different ways and the way in which it sort of comes out. So even at the end, I do feel sad for Joe. Like I have sympathy for you know, and and that is sort of remarkable in the history of the world, you know, like a, a Reaganite Republican um, that I have sympathy for who, you know, worked on that law in that case and did the terrible things he did in that case. But still, because he's so lost and I, you know, maybe I have more hope for him that he will find his way because I want to believe that for all of us. Yeah, when I saw it uh, last week, I don't want to talk too much about the current production because, you know, it hasn't opened and blah, blah, blah. Something unlocked for me about Joe because at the end of the Bolshevik speech at the beginning of Perestroika, Bolshevik played by Hannah says, uh, if the snake sheds his skin before a new skin is ready, naked he will be in the world, pray to the forces of chaos. And then there's that scene at the towards the end of Perestroika where Joe sheds his skin. And I had never, like I've read this play so many times and I had never picked up on that that since Joe shed his skin, he's naked to the forces of chaos. And uh, it, it unlocked a new sense of sympathy for Joe with me. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, because I hadn't made that connection either. I thought it was really interesting in the book, just hearing different people talk about trying to reckon with Joe as a character and the fact that he doesn't really get that closure except in the miniseries when there's an additional scene where he's talking to his uh, mm-hmm. mother or it's shown that she's living with him. And just, you know, Kushner apparently almost wrote another play just about Joe <laughs> and sort of what happens to him afterwards. And I, I just, I find it 
really interesting the way that people are trying to grapple with this and that he does inspire such an array of responses because on the one hand like he is the kind of character that it's pretty easy to hate he is this <laughs> reaganite republican and he's you know allowed harper to believe that she is delusional rather than telling this truth about himself although of course that is very difficult in itself and he is this very complicated character and the text doesn't quite know what to do with him and different productions have taken different approaches to that in a way that it was useful to see them all lined up together and compare and sort of draw your own conclusions about him. Nicole, when you saw the, I know you don't want to talk about it, but when you saw the uh, the Michael Greif production at Signature, um, I know that he substantially rewrote Joe for that production. Was it noticeable to you? Well, for the record, I only saw part one oh, right. of the off-road right. Mayford. I had a ticket to part two, and I didn't go. <laughs> to give you any indication of how well Millennium Approaches went in that production for me. So I don't have any recall of that. Um, I My only recollection is just pure fury at that production. <laughs> um, blinding hatred. of. I mean, and it's so terrible because there are so many actors in that production um, who are wonderful and have done yeah, wonderful work yeah. that I've really enjoyed. But it And I you know, really can't lay the blame on on them um but that production made this play feel trite which mm-hmm. i didn't wow. think was possible <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's crazy um so yeah <laughs> I, yeah there there are he has re- made rewrites even since the national theater production last year uh that concern joe that uh are very noticeable mm-hmm. in perestroika um especially in that shedding the skin scene. And maybe that's why I heard, maybe that's why I made that connection. No, it's not because I made that connection before that scene happened. So, uh, but there, there is a, a huge thing that he has changed after. Should I, should I just, should I just say what it is? <laughs> I don't know. Cause I haven't seen it yet. So I'm going to yeah. be mad if yeah. you spoil something for me or, or will yeah. it enrich my experience mm-hmm. if I know it now? Think long and hard on that lane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We can take a minute. And kind of <laughs> no, it, it's 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 not a, it's not like a spoiler. So okay, go ahead. Uh, after Joe strips himself naked and says, you know, I'll do whatever you want, essentially, and Lewis leaves before Joe only said, "Then you'll come back to me." And then Lewis left the stage, and then he screams, "Then you'll come back to me!" Not a, it's not a question in the text. But now he crumbles onto the floor and says, please come back to me, which just by adding that please and Mm. by turning that from a scream to him offstage shows such a vulnerability in Joe that I don't think we've had before. I mean, it wasn't until I saw the National Theatre production last year in London that I, I mean, again, that I saw the inappropriateness of the relationship between Lewis and Joe. It was very easy to want to ship Lewis and Joe when it was Joe Mantello <laughs> and David Marshall. Okay, I will just tell you all that. Like, I'm sorry you weren't there. I'm sorry you weren't born yet. But it really was really <laughs> easy to want them to be together. And so watching this, the National Theater production particularly, it was like, oh. Oh, no, from like the get-go, I was like, oh, this is so wrong for both of you and I get why this is an ideological leather bar and I get like all of the things that were always there all along but you know I mean it took me a long time to see um 
past my own biases or whatever. Um, and that that creepy desperation of Joe, particularly in mm-hmm. this production, Marianne Elliott's production. Um, I mean, I saw it with Russell Tovey and now Lee Pace is playing it here on Broadway and I've not yet seen it. But, you know, it it really changed the the way I saw their interactions and the way in which I saw what they wanted from each other mm-hmm. and how how desperate Joe is like it's not this sort of interesting new rebirth maybe that David Marshall Grant brought to it but it's it's this flailing you know again we're sort of going back to that to the naked chaos of the way in which he's just grabbing for (laughs) anything or anyone to hold on to because he's spent a life rooted by other people yeah, yeah, I think we should have part two of this podcast where we talk after you have both seen yeah. Lee Pace because <laughs> he's he's doing some very uh, unexpected things with Joe that I that I I think they'll be divisive, but I thought, oh my god, <laughs> Lee Pace! I'm, I'm really excited to see his take on this character. Actually, I completely agree with everything you're saying, and just this moment when Lou and Joe are about to go home together and joe says i don't think i deserve being loved and lewis says there see we already have a lot in common and he's kind of unfazed by this because he's already consumed by this other type of self-loathing but i just thought it was interesting that joe is thinking about this in terms of love barely knowing this guy barely having had any kind of interactions and maybe lewis isn't thinking about in the same terms because he's had so much else going on with him but just joe as you said he's really just reaching out for anything and so desperate for affection and is reading this pretty minor interaction as indicative of something more than it is. And that sort of sets him up for (laughs) failure and pain. It's always been there, the whole sort of Joe seeking, you know, sort of the love of his father that he never had Mm -hmm. and certainly Mm -hmm. the, you know, sort of withholding love of his mother. I mean, you know, he is someone who's just... I mean, and again, maybe this is, again, my sort of sympathy for his character. He's always, you know, he's he's found himself, you know, okay, fine. I'm now, I now know who I am. I now want to be this person. It sort of flung open the doors, but doesn't have the tools to to get through the door and figure out how to build a relationship. I mean, if, if you've spent your entire life with love withheld from you, how do you even begin to interpret what it is? And for him, I mean, this is that fumbling process to do so. And that's why I guess I find his character slightly more hopeful in the sense of that, you know, I look at it as he's at the very, very early stages Mm. of a process that will continue well into the future. It's funny how, insistent i am at the end of this play is that it's not the end of these characters oh no and i get yeah. so i was so infuriated i mean like i love james mccardle's performance in in london as lewis um but he has a line in the book where he sort of thinks uh you know prior will probably die like within six months mm-hmm. at the end of the yeah. play and i'm like fuck you do not, say that. do not even speak those words like i cannot believe you would you would sentence him to death and i got really upset and i realized okay like maybe my my belief in the timeline of this play the perpetual right. is maybe a little irrational um (laughs) but i also wanted to point out that you know the play is so clear on the process of the development of this work and tony kushner's um writing of it and rewriting of it and all of that but i was surprised by how much i learned about directing Mm -hmm. um you know they do break the book down into these interludes of the characters and so the actors um and people speak all about each of the characters sort of individually and that gave me just such an insight into the process of some of the directors who were involved in the play and even the way in which the actors themselves found their way to their character and that work which you know was sort of unexpected to me. Can we move on to what moved us most in this um 
book because I definitely <laughs> cried a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it was hard for me to like settle on like one thing. <laughs> for me, I don't know. I mean, again, the David Marshall Grant stuff, I definitely was very moved by. But there was a point where Ellen McLaughlin, who played the angel, almost from the earliest part of the Eureka production, I mean, pretty much from the beginning through to Broadway. And she talks about a point where her massage therapist noticed that she was starting to develop wing muscles on her back. (laughs) And there was just something so beautiful and poetic and uh, metaphorical about the labor of this play physically changing her and I mean she had spent you know years and years of this character working wings on stage and you know for me this play has permanently changed my brain I mean it it, it is a formative part of my life in New York and um, my love of theater and um, my experience of myself and just growing up and learning about myself and processing my own issues of self-loathing and shame. So, you know, so I thought that that imagery was just so wonderful. And then she further gives sort of a lovely tribute to the designer, the wing designer on Broadway, John Deary, who died of AIDS shortly after the play opened. And she says, I felt like I carried him on my back after he died. And I was always grateful for the extraordinary care he expended on the wings. They were something to behold. And there's just, I mean, she's a playwright uh, as well as being an actor. And, uh, I mean, there was just something so beautiful in the way she she speaks in this book. I was really moved by this book from the very beginning because it starts uh, in the height of the AIDS crisis. And it talks about how uh, what was happening in the world uh, spurred Tony Kushner to write this play. And uh, is the section where they talk about, uh, where Robert Stanton talks about going to see the normal heart He says, uh, I'm sitting in the audience watching The Normal Heart, and it's like AIDS 101, and it was effective. There's the scene between the doctor and Brad Davis, and she asks what his sexual behavior with his partner is, and she basically says, all caps, what are you doing? And my blood ran cold. He talks about how uh, uh, later, how uh, a doctor, or how how he said to himself uh, that he wanted to get an HIV test, but... uh, then he said, what's the point? If you have HIV, you're going to die. So isn't it better to not know? And then he says that later a doctor literally said that to him and uh, how this was this was the way we were talking about AIDS. And this was the way that people were, uh, it, you know, if you're familiar with the normal heart, you know that the normal heart is a very angry, screamy, yelly play. Uh, there's spilled milk and people cry over it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's that famous monologue about the garbage bags in the normal heart. Um, and then Angels came after that and takes that anger but transmutes it into a, a huge panoramic view of all of these people that are affected by AIDS and that are affected by uh, the idea of homosexuality at the time. And um, I was really I was really moved by uh, sort of taking that and uh, t- taking what was happening in the world at the time and uh, creating art from that. Because now that AIDS is not, uh, it's not a death sentence anymore for most people, we sort of lose that context. We sort of lose uh, how awful it was unless you were there. And then obviously you still remember. But, you know, I, I, I know that a lot of gay men of my generation don't, you know, you get an STD and you can take some pills and it's, or it takes, you know, whatever medication and it's done. You know, you don't have it anymore. But 
when these people were coming from this time of such fear and uh, they could die for they could die from having sex. It's terrifying. It was so moving to me to be reminded of that and of uh, how this play uh, takes that real life passion, that that real life. I, I not even the the it takes the realness of that and uh, makes it into something so so huge and poetic and life-changing yeah i mean i marked that quote about the normal heart as aids 101 as well just the idea that for a lot of people because you know the newspapers weren't really talking about it people didn't necessarily know what it meant there was kind of a deliberate science or silence (laughs) science there was a deliberate silence from the administration at that time Mm -hmm. and the idea that theatre could have this impact on the national conversation and be where you learned about something that you might have, like uh, um, a number of quotes in the book are about moments where um, Pryor's lesions are revealed and there Mm -hmm. are people in the audience who are kind of like, oh, I might have that or this could be me. And people who took their parents to see the play and then you know, in between um, Millennium Approaches and Perestroika or at the end of the whole marathon, they would say, I'm gay or I'm dying of AIDS. And just for that to be the kind of focal point or jumping off point for that conversation is incredible and (laughs) really upsetting, obviously. But I, I also felt like for the actors themselves, as you were talking about, Nicole, the extent to which these roles kind of helped them to work through their own internalized homophobia or better understand things that they themselves were dealing with. Um, there's a really incredible quote from David Marshall Grant, who played Joe, where he says, uh, he's talking about the conversation in the play where uh, Joe comes out to his mother over the phone. And he says, to say that out loud every night, the thing I tried so hard not to be, the thing I was in therapy not to be, the thing I tried to hide from my agent, it was very cathodic. And just the idea that at that moment, this was something that was impossible to talk about and something that people were terrified of in themselves, and that this was kind of an outlet for that pain and fear for him, and that it helped him to come to grips with his own identity in that way is incredibly upsetting that it was necessary but it just really drives home the importance of this as a play to so many people who were in it and who saw it it's it's impact on everything that we now are as a community and the rest of the world's understanding of that I think it's why it upsets me sometimes when people treat it as a historic AIDS play, mm-hmm. as if these conversations, as if, as if people's self-realizations, as if these journeys are somehow limited to an experience in the 1980s, that people aren't still uh, you know, struggling through self-expression and mm-hmm. um, struggling through making relationships for themselves or finding love or finding themselves worthy of love. And I think seeing those characters do that at any you know at very, now two or three stages of my life you know seeing different productions of this has been still incredibly emotional i mean certainly again it sort of takes me back to my teenage self but i do think that this play has an important contribution 
to make to audiences today, to younger audiences today. Um, I was so excited. Um, a, a performance artist and um, teacher that I follow on Twitter took her nine-year-old and her 14-year-old to go see <laughs> the show this week. And she she said that, you know, like the 14-year-old loved it and was laughing. And the nine-year-old had some questions and sort of <laughs> talked about sex and gender. And, you know, she's, I mean, she's a performance artist who does a lot with menstrual blood. So I imagine the conversations <laughs> she has at her breakfast table with her kids are very different from the ones my mom had with me. And I, you know, love her for it. And it does make me believe that this play has so much value for everyone today still. And yes, it reflects a particular piece of history, but I feel like there's so many different ways to read this text and there's so many ways to experience this play. And, you know, I just, I, I hate to see people kind of sweeping it into the dustbin of like, oh, well, it was, you know, just a little picture of the past and that's over and everything's fine now, you know. Yeah, right, because it isn't. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, I th- I think this this play more so than the normal heart s- says more than just people are dying of AIDS, which I'm not diminishing what the normal heart says. Tony, uh, uh, Larry Kramer is going to hear this and is going to come after me. <laughs> but uh, oh my god, if Larry Kramer hears this, he's going to demand his own episode. <laughs> but uh, but the normal heart was important because it was the first play to say any of these things angels in america can exist because the normal heart existed so I, it didn't exist it's not existed it still exists <laughs> but angels is concerned with more things than just the immediate acknowledgement of the aids crisis how it manages to do that and then keep the aids crisis so prominent and so sewn into its fabric is is a triumph And I mean, I think that historical perspective is really valuable, especially now, because we don't necessarily have that record. We, you know, so many people were lost to the AIDS Mm -hmm. crisis. And, you know, they, they talk about history being rewritten quite early on in this book. And I think that's true to an extent. Like there's been this sort of rehabilitation of Reagan. Hillary Clinton uh, Mm -hmm. commended Nancy Reagan for her, (laughs) you know, her work advocating for the victims of HIV and AIDS, which she did not do. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, Roy Cohn's protege is in the White House and Pence has his own complicated bad relationship with <laughs> HIV and AIDS and conversion therapy and you know it's but if there's one person who needs to see this play yeah yeah, right. yeah and it's it's painfully relevant but I think just having it both for the specificity of this moment in history and for the universality of the themes and experiences it it does so much on so many levels and yeah I don't want it to be consigned to a period piece as such but I think it is a really valuable expression of that moment as well. Mm-hmm. One of the things that came up in the book that I don't think a lot about, and this is my own sort of privileged, limited perspective, um, and you sort of touched on it a little bit with the character of Belize and the way in which mm-hmm. sort of race plays a role in the work. It's not a wildly diverse play. There is some reconsideration, Tony Kushner, and sort of in, in the book, perhaps this character of Belize as the nurse, as a supporting character. And maybe if I'd rewritten, the, if I'd written the play today, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have written it the same way. Yeah. I thought that Nathan Stewart Jarrett, when he talks about experiencing the democracy and America speech, talks about how painful it is to sit there and take that shit and I think it's easy to have watched this play over time and sort of relish the ridiculousness of Lewis and his Hmm. overzealous completely you know wrong-headed political (laughs) theorizing and contradictions and stupidity overly thought underthought stupidity and I hadn't again being in my own sort of white privilege 
considered what it's like to have to experience that lecture. I mean, because it is set up as a very comedic yeah. moment. We know Belize's response is coming. We anticipate a takedown of Lewis in any you know way, and it's going to happen. But even so, as an actor having to sit there and listen to that, there were and there was in the book, you know, some commentary about the the limited perspective of the play in that sense. And I appreciated the having that conversation now, since it is a much bigger part of the conversation now than it was then. Uh, but it yeah. does kind of lead to the the question of sort of criticisms of the book because this doesn't just have to be a love fest. This is our little book club. <laughs> uh, but I did want to make space for anyone who has complaints, um, uh, such as they are. So feel. Feel free now to air your complaints. <laughs> Everyone turns well, to their notebooks. <laughs> I, I already mentioned Michael Riedel and not to give him more time, but uh, I thought that every contribution he had was uh, completely unnecessary to the, to the story they were telling. And, uh, and there's even, there's even that part in the book where they quote Michael Riedel and then someone says, uh, Michael Riedel's a little shit or something like that. <laughs> And, uh, and, uh, I mean, I would, I would have appreciated some, uh, dissenting voices, you know, as, as we mentioned here that we should have added dissenting voice as well, eh, but, but yeah, <laughs> but, but also like, you're not going to read this, you don't read this book to hear bad things about <laughs> angels in America, you know, you're not going to say, let me read this 400 page oral history to hear people who don't like the book, who don't like the play, you know? So your so, perspective will not be validated by this oral history. Yeah, right. So that was my that was my only quibble is is like I didn't I didn't think that Riedel's interjections were necessary. And they didn't add anything to the to the book. Yeah. I feel like the emptiest statement of all time is like, it's the Hamilton of fill in the blank. Oh and yeah. I'm just like, Fuck off. It Everybody just happened. <laughs> so many people said that and it just kept coming. And I was like, okay, well, you, maybe you can make this point once to like evoke the scale of it or whatever, but yeah. we don't need to hear that 20 times. I just, yeah, that also was. Also, because we hear it every day on the internet all the time. It is like, because we are still living in the moment. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I, I, I was like, why can't you just say that? that this play was a big deal without comparing it to Hamilton. Like yeah. why, why does all theater have to be held up next to Hamilton now? Yeah. It's completely absurd. I guess my complaint, if I had one was, I mean, maybe I would have appreciated a little bit more sort of cultural context. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously the oral history structure, you know, is going to be driven by the artists and production experiences. And there were so many more productions in there than I kind of anticipated. Mm -hmm. You know, it was nice to hear about the national tour, which I knew nothing about. And, um, you know, the David Cromer's production. And I mean, there were things in e the Evo and production that I'd forgotten that mm -hmm. that conversation sort of reminded me of. So I, I was kind of appreciative of the scope of, um, uh, you know, sort of student productions and and other productions and the voices of, of playwrights today who were influenced by it and all of that. But I guess I, yeah, I mean, there's still a piece of it that, I mean, I bring my own history of the time to it and my own sense of what was going on. But I think as you were sort of talking about, Alex, the underwritten media conversations about some of these things and the way in which history has not necessarily been well reflected by media means that we are really dependent on books are you know taking the moment here to give some more perspective and certainly there is i mean the the culture wars the campus culture wars of the 90s i'm like oh yeah i really would read a book on that yeah. to give myself some 
shape of it because again mm-hmm. I was like oh I was pressed up against it in my own university in my own experience of it not realizing there was you know there I mean there was a little bit of that there was a national conversation happening about it but the specifics of that you know here specifically relating to the um, sort of problems with taking the tour and, and university productions of it which is again so funny where I was coming from a university it was like everyone read this game <laughs> play please and I hadn't realized how unique my NYU experience was yeah. for that sense um, you know I mean part of the joy of that was feeling like oh I'm part I'm part of this national conversation because I'm going to the school where it is part of the national conversation <laughs> and you felt you know that you you that this was part of something larger than just you sitting in this theater seat and, and what was happening you know on stage in front of you and I feel like again it was a, a, an experience that spoiled me for theater <laughs> in the future because how rare is that that you know um sense that that what you were experiencing resonates sort of beyond the four walls of that room and the conversation will continue you know out into the streets yeah i mean i think it's to the book's credit that most of my complaints are just i wish there was more of this <laughs> like it's already 400 pages long i understand that not everything could uh, could make it in But I do sort of, to your point, wish that they had spent a little bit more time on the politics because I feel like it does a really good job in that first chapter of kind of grounding you in the epidemic and the kind of cultural conception and the the political response or non-response in that moment. And then at the last chapter, it sort of talks about how this plays in 2018. But I felt like in the space in between, apart they do have timelines throughout the book. So each kind of act of the book tells you the the political things that were happening in that moment alongside the development of and different productions of angels. But I felt like in the chapters themselves, that maybe wasn't as much of a focus. And I think that there would have been some value in uh, reconstructing that a little bit more, simply because, as you say, uh, that isn't necessarily something we have a strong grasp of or in like a bird's eye view. We get these anecdotes that are really good and uh, illustrate those points pretty well, but you don't really get a sense of the scale of uh, what was happening and why this mattered in the same way. And I would have liked to see more of that. But I mean, in general, I found this really effective and it taught me a lot about not just angels, but about that, that time and the sort of trajectory of, art and politics and culture so you know on the whole would recommend (laughs) thumbs up um yeah no i mean i think if you have any interest in theater uh and plays the history of plays in america this book you know becomes essential i mean again you you know i i am spoiled because i have seen many of the productions that are in there you know but i think even if you haven't if you've only read the play there's still so much value that comes from the voices and who's reflecting on it and um, their experiences. Because I think it'll make you feel be- better about any production you've had that has gone awry. Oh, yeah. Like if, you know, if you feel like, oh my God, we dropped that prop and this happened and then, <laughs> trust me, nothing as bad, bad could happen as all of the things that happened to these productions <laughs> of Angels. Yeah, and I, th- I think even if you haven't seen these productions, when you read about them, it's it's the way that this is constructed and because it's the, it is the voices of people who were there, you feel like you were there. I mean, like I, I, 
can so see the angel on that ladder in Michael Mayer's basement production or whatever mm. it was where the ceiling was too short. You know, <laughs> I, I, you can, it's so evocative the way these people describe their experiences with the play. I mean, I'm just so happy it's back. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I haven't seen the production on Broadway yet. And I so worry that I'm like, oh my God, is this the last one I'm going to have in my lifetime on Broadway? I mean, you can appreciate a production that has all the money to throw at it right. mm-hmm. in, a, in a very different way than, than you know, sort of the basement productions mm-hmm. of it that exist. And both are valid. Taking the time, the money, the energy to stage this on Broadway when it is financially challenging to stage plays on Broadway, when it is very difficult to stage two-part plays, <laughs> where it's really hard to sell people on, you know, eight hours worth of theater um, in anybody's busy, busy life, the audacity to try now in, in the particularly difficult sort of Broadway environment that exists means a lot to me because I just think it's so it's so critical to who we are and it's so important to keep having this conversation and keep bringing this text back into people's lives and I think as you were sort of saying like reading it is a very different experience necessarily from seeing it and it is a it is a work that benefits from from being seen, and so I encourage people to go and get rush tickets if the prices are too scary. Um, keep an eye out on TDF because it was popping up there. The lottery, um, the digital lottery, digital mm-hmm. lottery. Um, you know, any which way you can, because I think there is you know any preconceived notions you may have about the play either will be you know met, changed, you know, or validated through seeing it. It's the kind of work that being in a room full of people sharing it with you, I think yeah. it becomes its own specific experience. Yeah, and I've seen 60-minute plays that felt four times longer than <laughs> both parts of this play. <laughs> um, well, thank you guys for joining me here today in my living room. Thank you, Nicole. Yeah, thank you for giving me an excuse to talk about this play for now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, can we, I just keep talking. I can talk forever, but... <laughs> 